I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. Three dead doctors lay in oddly contorted positions in the small clinic. Henry understood the courage it took to face an invisible enemy. Brave men and women who rushed into battle would flee from the onset of disease. Disease was more powerful than armies. Disease was more arbitrary than terrorism. Disease was crueler than human imagination. And yet young people like these doctors were willing to stand in the way of the most fatal force that nature has to offer. That's a passage from The End of October, a new novel by the journalist Lawrence Wright about a worldwide pandemic emanating from Asia that causes mass misery and death, disrupting the economies and the social structures of the most advanced countries on Earth. Wright wrote the novel before COVID-19, but his book uncannily and eerily anticipates almost everything we are now living through, from social distancing and quarantines to the despair and fears of an American public that doesn't know who to trust. We'll talk to Wright about how he came to write his prophetic book. And we'll talk to Tony Blinken, the top foreign policy advisor to presumptive Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I got to say, reading this Larry Wright novel is just surreal. It anticipates almost everything we are experiencing and a lot more. But the idea that Larry, who is an accomplished journalist, Pulitzer Prize winner, author of uh, The Looming Tower about uh, 9-11 and lots of other books, that he got this, that he understood the threat from a pandemic in ways that the top leaders of the U.S. government did not is so striking. I always say that uh, the uh, true measure of you know, great reporting is uh, talent, but also serendipity. And timing has a lot to do with serendipity. Uh, it is really amazing. He's been working on this book for several years, and it is coming out in the middle of this global health emergency, this pandemic that we're all dealing with. And one of the many things that's striking about it as you read it is that all of the things, as you say, that uh, should have been anticipated by our government were anticipated by Larry Wright, down to whether there were going to be enough personal protective equipment for people or ventilators or whether the president uh, of the United States would have to use the uh, Defense Production Act to commandeer American companies to produce uh, this kind of equipment. 
to social distancing. It's really uh, quite stunning. And it's a great story as well. It's a depressing story, but it's amazingly well-written. And um, what's interesting to me is that even as we're experiencing this, there was something about reading the book that was kind of cathartic for me. Something about the idea that, uh, that a kind of a universality of the experience. If a, if a novelist can conjure up everything that we're doing, you know, there's, I don't know, there was something kind of strangely comforting to me about that. Well, comforting is not the word that comes to mind in my experience <laughs> reading the book. Uh, it's a pretty despair. <laughs> Dystopian account of uh, a complete breakdown. Things get a lot worse than we're even experiencing now. But I, I guess it's comforting in the sense that uh, the pandemic that he writes about is the worst case scenario where literally tens of millions of people die and there is this kind of social breakdown in the country. We're obviously not anywhere near that. And we're actually seeing a pretty... Um, good side of human nature in dealing with this, not the kind of apocalyptic, you know, behavior that uh, he depicts in the novel. Maybe we'll get there. I certainly hope not. Yeah, look, I mean, <laughs> we're, we are at, uh, as we speak, over 50,000 deaths in the United States right now. I remember just a few weeks ago, we were talking about the milestone that we were going to top 3,000, which was more than the numbers of people who died during 9-11. And look in just the three weeks since then of um, the trajectory we've been on and could still be on if we're at 50k now remember a couple weeks ago trump was saying he's hoping to keep things down the death toll down below 80 uh, i that does not seem at the rate we're going that that's going to be the case and what's really ominous about all of this is you know wright's book is called uh, the end of october and that really gets at this idea of a second wave because in the 1918 the spanish flu pandemic it started in the spring. It came roaring back the following fall. And Tony Fauci thinks that uh, this pandemic will come back in the fall or winter as well. So the numbers are sadly going to keep going up. Right. We've also got Tony Blinken, a return guest for Skullduggery, uh, former Deputy Secretary of State, top advisor to uh, the Biden campaign, uh, longtime aide to uh, Biden. And certainly if... Uh, if Biden wins the election, uh, one can be expect to be hearing a lot more from Tony Blinken, uh, and he's going to give us the Biden campaign's critique of Trump's uh, conduct so far. And I just want to do, we don't usually do novels on the show. In fact, this is our first. I'm also going to just going to do a brief obit to a guy who you and I have known for years, Terry Lenzner, the famed investigator, worked for the Watergate Committee, worked for Bill Clinton's lawyers, worked for the Justice Department Civil Rights Division, a guy who's kind of exemplifies the spirit of skullduggery. And um, it was sad to read uh, that he has left us, but his legacy will continue and um, hopefully continue in some way by the kinds of things we talk about on this show. So on that point, let's um, let's get on with it. And we'll start with Tony Blinken. We now have with us Tony Blinken, 
former deputy secretary of state under President Obama and now the chief foreign policy advisor to the Biden campaign. Tony, welcome back to Skullduggery. That's good to be with you. So obviously a lot of uh, controversy about uh, the handling of the uh, coronavirus pandemic by the Trump administration, and in particular about how it has dealt with China. And there's been a lot of questions about how forthcoming the Chinese have been, how transparent they've been on this. As you look at this right now, can we trust what the Chinese have been telling us about the virus? Look, China is a great country, and with that comes great responsibility. And in the, uh, this particular case, being the, the point of origin of this virus, that responsibility is particularly acute. And I think what's been challenging from uh, the early days is that China has not been fully forthcoming with information about the virus. It has not given adequate access to uh, experts from the United States uh, and other places. This is particularly true uh, in, the, in the early weeks, but there remain you know, real concerns about how much information it's sharing. And the problem here is that at the very moment when China was not living up to its responsibilities, instead of pressing the government uh, to do just that, President Trump was praising China, praising it for its leadership on the virus, praising it for its transparency and cooperation. And that was exactly the opposite of what was happening. So at the very moment when it was important to be tough on the Chinese government to meet its responsibilities, uh, Donald Trump went soft. Tony, we're going to we'll, we'll be asking you a lot more questions about uh, Donald Trump. But let me just follow up on on one aspect of this you know, sort of uh, idea of a sort of lack of transparency from the Chinese. And that is this theory that's been circulating in the media. Uh, we've written about it. And of course, the intelligence community is looking at this very closely, which is the possibility that the virus started as an accident uh, from a, one of the labs in, in Wuhan, that it escaped a lab. First of all, does uh, Vice President Biden give credence to that theory? Is that something that uh, he thinks is a serious possibility, should be looked at very closely? The short answer is yes, but the longer answer is we, we just don't know, but we need to find out, which again is why the Chinese government needs to be fully forthcoming. We need to have an appropriate investigation of the origins of the virus. And again, uh, it's important to draw a big distinction, a big, big, big distinction between something that might have originated accidentally in a lab and something that was conjured up intentional in a lab. And I don't think there is, at least as I have seen it publicly, any compelling evidence to suggest the latter. There is, I think, some evidence that needs to be looked at that says the former is possible, which is to say there was some accidental transmission from, from a lab. He would like to see President Trump put pressure on the Chinese to actually start a forensic investigation of the origins of the virus spread, because the Chinese, as far as we know, has not done that. What we'd like to see is the uh, international community uh, making clear that uh, China needs to meet that responsibility. And it is for everyone's own good, which is to say we need we obviously need to know exactly how this started and originated so that we can uh, do our best to make sure it never happens again. If, in fact, it originated accidentally in a lab, there are measures that can be taken to safeguard uh, these labs. There are uh, ways uh, going forward to make sure that labs, whether in China or elsewhere, that may be working on these kinds of things are adequately safeguarded and that there are appropriate inspections. There is one, I should just add, you know, it's, I think, deeply unfortunate that the United States is pulling uh, back from the WHO, whatever its faults in uh, dealing with this crisis, 
for a whole variety of reasons, not to, uh, you know, starting with the fact that it's absolutely, the WHO is absolutely vital in dealing with the, uh, with the virus now. It will be vital going forward when, God willing, we get a vaccine. But among other things, it would be vital to give it some teeth and ability going forward to uh, conduct adequate and appropriate inspections in places where there are uh, concerns. That's why we need this information. That's why we need to understand what happened. Tony, you made mention of the critique from Vice President Biden and his campaign that the president hasn't been tough enough on China. The president has retorted, well, January 31, he did announce a ban on travel from China, not affecting U.S. citizens, but anybody else. And on that day that he did that, Vice President Biden campaigning in Iowa said, quote, this is no time for Donald Trump's record of hysteria and xenophobia, hysterical xenophobia and fear mongering to lead the way instead of science. That sounded very much like a criticism from Biden of the president's decision to slam down and stop people coming in from China. Was the vice president right to make those comments? Except it wasn't. The, uh, and this has been written about and documented. What the vice president in that, in that speech was referring to was the extension that had just happened just before that of the so-called Muslim ban. You'll remember that the administration extended those measures to other countries. And that is what the vice president was referring to. He was not referring to the travel restrictions imposed on China by President Trump. Uh, and that has been. Did he endorse those travel restrictions? Two things. Let's take a look at those uh, restrictions. The president likes to say that he acted first and decisively and took this uh, very, very important step, except that more than 40 other countries acted before we did in imposing various restrictions on travel from China as well as from some other countries. Uh, and of course, even after the restrictions were put in place, some 40,000 people of one kind or another came from China into the United States. So it was not exactly the ban the president talks about. And indeed, before the restrictions were put in place, but after the virus broke out, uh, I believe the numbers are hundreds of thousands of people. So the main thing is the virus, alas, tragically, had already traveled, was already in the United States. So those are the facts. But the, there's another context here that's, that's very, very important, and that goes to the concerns we have about the way uh, President Trump has conducted our policy. First, before any of this actually happened, if you go back to the Obama-Biden administration, they knew, President Obama, Vice President Biden knew it was only a matter of time before a pandemic would hit the United States. We'd had the experience of SARS. We obviously had, in a different way, uh, H1N1 and Ebola. And they also knew that China was a particular concern as a possible point of origin, which is why they put in place a whole series of safeguards to prevent, uh, you know, to predict and help protect Americans if a pandemic emerged. President Trump undid or undercut virtually every single program and the people they put in place to do the prevention, the detection, and dealing with the pandemic, including one originating from China. And I'm happy to recite the, uh, well, not happy, uh, it's unfortunate, but there's a long list of things. So even before the virus emerged, President Trump had taken down the defenses that we had put in place. And then when it did emerge, as I said a moment ago, instead of holding China to account to meet its responsibilities in sharing information and giving access to our experts, the president did exactly the opposite. He didn't press them. And to the contrary, he praised them repeatedly. 
15 times in January and, uh, and February, praising the government for its cooperation, for its leadership, and for its transparency, uh, which is really mind-boggling since that was exactly the opposite of what was happening. Hey, Tony, a few days ago, the Biden campaign, or, or maybe it was a, a PAC, I can't remember now, but put out a pretty tough advertisement going after Trump for being soft on, uh, on China, I think, uh, accusing uh, Trump of rolling over for China. And there's a perception out there among some in the Asian American community that at a time now when there are a lot of people concerns about xenophobia and anti-Asian bias, that an ad like that you know, can, can sort of fan the flames of, of xenophobia. I just want to read one tweet here from uh, Celia Wang, a deputy legal director at the National ACLU. It says, wow, at Joe Biden, already trying to out-Trump Trump. This kind of fear-mongering is causing violent attacks on Asian Americans. What's your response to that? So my response is, two, is twofold. First, I think we have to all be extremely mindful of how we talk about these things, the language we use, and you know, our concern is with the actions of the government of China, obviously not the Chinese people. And um, I think it's important that uh, we all bend over backwards to make that, uh, that clear. But I think it's also very important to point out that Vice President Biden has blasted the, as he put it, the spate of racist incidents targeting Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders that have accompanied this outbreak. He called this outbreak disgusting and racist acts that must stop. Uh, he's also held President Trump's feet to the fire over the use of xenophobic labels for COVID-19. Uh, you know, the Wuhan virus, the Chinese virus. The ad itself, I think, levels substantive, deserved criticisms at President Trump for believing discredited propaganda from the Chinese government about containment of the virus. And that's something that contemporaneously Vice President Biden warned him not to do. The very same days that President Trump was, again, taking the Chinese government's word for things, not pressing them on sharing information, not pressing them on allowing access for our experts, uh, Joe Biden was warning him that he should not be taking the government's word and he should be pressing them. And unfortunately, the misjudgment that President Trump made has had uh, terrible consequences for uh, Americans. Tony, uh, as you know, part of the pushback you're going to get from the Trump campaign is going to focus on Hunter Biden, who in 2013, while his father was vice president, joined the board of BHR, a Chinese private equity firm. Now, I understand that he has since stepped down from the board, but he had also bought a 10% equity stake in that Chinese firm, and it's not clear whether he has sold that off. Can you shed any light on whether Hunter is still associated in any way with the Chinese equity firm, and how does the campaign intend to respond to the inevitable attack ads that the Trump campaign is going to throw at you on this issue? Well, I can't speak to uh, you know any of the details of uh, Hunter, Hunter Biden. He can speak for himself. I think uh, the uh, allegations that have been tossed out there have been repeatedly and consistently uh, debunked in most of the media, but it's not something that I can speak to. I don't, uh, don't know the details, and he speaks very uh, effectively for himself. I think he's, uh, he's talked about this in the, in the past. What I can speak to is what's right on the headlines as we're speaking which is the fact that the president of the United States owes through his company tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to a leading Chinese state-owned entity, the Bank of China, which loaned him, in effect, money for one of his prized real estate possessions in New York. That's the president of the United States we're talking about. 
So that would seem to me to be a much more salient issue than any of these debunked allegations. You got attack ads on that ready to go? Look, all I can tell you is that this is a pretty powerful story. I think it was in Politico today uh, as, we're, uh, as we're speaking. Hey, Tony, I want to pull back a little bit and, and ask you about how China is taking advantage of this crisis to expand its geopolitical influence and step into what I, I assume you think is the void of American leadership. And I, I actually have one very straightforward question, and I'd, I'd like a one-word answer and then give the opportunity to, to caveat it. But I just want to know, who do you think is emerging stronger from this crisis? China right now, China or America? <laughs> I, re- I resist one-word answers with a general proposition. <laughs> Damn, I thought I would. Been thought in, I could train government there. too long for that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But guys, look, look. I think the, the other the other thing that's that's fair to say is we can take snapshots in time, but this is a moving picture, and whatever we conclude today may look very different in in, in six months or, or, or seven months. But having said that. I do think that, you know, if you look uh, sort of across the board at President Trump's approach to China, it's clearly been more beneficial to China than it has been uh, than it has been to us. And that is a real uh, strategic problem. There was, a, uh, you know, a, a very compelling piece by a couple of academics who've been talking to uh, numerous Chinese government officials and scholars. And it was interesting. This is Paul Hanley and others who'd uh, written, I think, in Foreign Policy magazine. This is last year, but I think it still, uh, it still holds. And they said that uh, during nu- numerous off-the-record discussions with Chinese government officials and scholars, we were finding that an increasing number are hoping for President Trump's re-election next year. At a time when China's political influence and military capabilities are growing, they argue that in spite of his anti-China bluster, Uh, Trump has afforded Beijing the space to expand its influence across Asia and, more importantly, comprehensively weaken Washington's global leadership. From a zero-sum standpoint, many Chinese have concluded that Trump's policies are strategically very good for China in the long run. Uh, That's not me speaking. That's not Joe Biden speaking. Uh, This is on the basis of interviews by some leading scholars in China hands with Chinese government and, and academic counterparts. Well, are you seeing this, China taking advantage of some of these opportunities in this particular crisis? I mean... No, no, absolutely. Look, let's take a couple of concrete examples. The World Health Organization. Again, one can have legitimate criticism of the way the organization handled the virus in the early going. Ironically, the criticism that President Trump levels at the World Health Organization, that it was too slow to act and too credulous of, of China, are in classic fashion much better uh, applied to President Trump himself. It's a classic case of projection. The very faults he alleges uh, in others are ones that are much more applicable to him. Having said that, what happens if we fully pull back from the WHO, freeze our funding, maybe even lose our, uh, uh, lose our seed as a result of that? One, of course, is that the organization, uh, which remains vital to dealing with the virus, uh, will have fewer resources to do it. Two is that the other things the WHO works on on a regular basis, like malaria and tuberculosis, will also be uh, hobbled, uh, and that's not good for us. But three, there's a vacuum in the organization. And who's likely to fill the vacuum? China. And what does that mean? It means that our efforts to turn the WHO into something that's uh, more effective, that can help uh, better guard against pandemics in the future, that may be given some real teeth to inspect and investigate, that's not likely to happen. So there are very real world and practical consequences for us pulling back and leaving a vacuum that someone else fills, uh, including China. Uh, that's the way the world works. But the, and I think Vice President Biden has said this uh, very powerfully, including in things that he's written uh, recently. 
whether we like it or not, the world tends not to organize itself. And for the last 70 plus years, until the Trump administration, uh, the United States was playing a lead role in doing some of that organizing, helping to establish the rules, the norms, the institutions that govern relations among nations, very imperfectly, and uh, certainly falling short of the mark, but nonetheless, moving things in a positive direction. What we know is when we don't do it, one of two things, either someone else does, uh, and probably not in ways that advance our own interests and values, or maybe just as bad no one does, and then there's a vacuum filled by bad things before it's filled by good things. That's the world that Donald Trump is leaving us, is creating and leaving us, uh, and one that uh, if Joe Biden's elected, would be the first thing we would change. Tony, you know, there's campaign rhetoric and then there's governing. And like right now, both campaigns are into the China bashing phase. But whoever is elected in November is still going to have to deal with China. We still need China's help with North Korea. We still want the Chinese to buy grain from American farmers. How do you navigate or how do you see a Biden presidency dealing more broadly with a China that is aggressive, not transparent, totalitarian, kicks out Western journalists, but at the same time, we have so many issues that we have to deal with them. Just walk us through how a Biden presidency would deal with China differently, more broadly than a Trump presidency. So Joe Biden's had long and deep experience with China going back many, many years and more recently, significant experience in, in dealing with Xi Jinping. Uh, when, uh, when President Xi was still vice president of China and uh, Joe Biden was vice president of the United States, we knew that he was going to become the, the leader, but it was not appropriate because he was then vice president for President Obama to engage him. So Joe Biden was given the responsibility of spending a significant amount of time with Xi Jinping. We went to China and spent a week there. There was a return visit by, by Xi to the United States, hosted by Vice President Biden. Uh, they were together not just in our capitals, but in Chengdu and China and then uh, on the West Coast in the United States. And a lot of that was designed for the vice president to be able to kind of draw out and size up the rising president of China. So there's a deep well of knowledge and experience there, uh, including directly with Xi Jinping. If you, if you go back and look, Joe Biden was talking about going back, uh, I mean, for example, in 2015, he gave a speech at the Strategic and Economic Dialogue that used to exist between the United States and China, talking about the need for the U.S. and China to compete responsibly. And that uh, has been a constant thread in his thinking. The issue is not whether we're uh, competitors, but how to do it in a way that advances uh, U.S. interests. So he was emphasizing the need to work much more closely with our allies. Parentheses here, when we're trying to get China to change its behavior in a certain area, to change the, its actions, for example, in the trade area, when we're acting alone, we're about 25% of world GDP. When we're acting with our allies and partners, it's 50% or more. It's a lot harder for China to resist the combined weight uh, of countries working together than it is for, uh, for them to push back against even the United States. So he was talking about the need to work more closely with allies. Tr President Trump, of course, has um, undercut uh, and disparaged our alliances, a great sign of strength and source of strength when it comes to dealing with China. He was talking about the need to uh, uphold international law, including in the uh, South China Sea, to adhere resolutely to our values, something else that President Trump has moved away from in foregoing, forsaking human rights and democracy. And maybe most important, investing in our own strengths uh, in terms of immigration, science and technology in our workforce, uh, as well as in immigration. Again, things that President Trump has moved away from. 
He believes strongly that in this competition with China, which is which is uh, uh, real and will define the uh, the future, if we're making those investments and if we're working with our partners around the world, we're going to do just fine. And that would be, I think, the biggest change that you'd see emerging from a Biden presidency. Tony, there was a uh, a pool report from a, a Biden campaign event uh, a few days ago in which uh, the vice president suggested that Donald Trump would try to postpone the election and. What he said was, uh, mark my words, I think he's going to try to kick back the election somehow, come up with some rationale why it can't be held. That's the only way he thinks he can possibly win. I'm just wondering what the basis for that is and you know, pointing out that it would actually take an act of Congress to delay the election. So what is he uh, getting at there? Look, I think particularly in the context of um, the, the coronavirus, there are real concerns about making sure that the election can be conducted both safely and democratically. And there's no doubt in my mind that it can be. Uh, Look at what just happened in South Korea. They had uh, national legislative elections. I think they had the highest turnout in uh, recent memory in the context of this virus. And that's because they took the steps necessary to make sure that the election could go forward in a safe and democratic way, extending early voting, having write-in voting, and also making sure that polling places themselves were designed in a safe manner. Now, If the president wanted to do the same thing here, he should be leading the charge right now to make sure that the election comes off safely and democratically uh, in November and making sure that we're taking steps now and that states are taking steps now to ensure that. But to the contrary, we've had utter silence. And then in the case of the the recent uh, vote in Wisconsin, unfortunately, we've seen efforts made to um, actually endanger people, not allow them to vote safely. And that, of course, was litigated right up to the uh, Supreme Court. So I think there are genuine concerns out there about the steps that are needed to make sure the election happens uh, safely and democratically. And um, we've not heard the president uh, say anything about that when this is the moment to do it. Second, of course, doesn't take a, a long memory to remember the kinds of things President Trump was saying in advance of the 2016 election, uh, claiming that it was going to be rigged, fraudulent, et cetera. That's when he thought he was likely to lose the election. So there's a history there as well that everyone knows quite well. Last question, Tony. Uh, Do you have any indications that uh, foreign actors like the Russians, like the Chinese, like the Iranians are actively trying to um, meddle in the election this time the way the Russians did in 2016? Yes. And in fact, I think the the system continues to flash red. There is evidence on a pretty regular basis, groups that are tracking this and also from our intelligence community in terms of what I've seen publicly, and even in, in testimony uh, that took place before the virus broke out and Congress was, uh, was functioning, that said, absolutely, this is not just something that, that happened in the past. And parenthetically, conclusions of the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, Republican-run Senate uh, Intelligence Committee, just this past week, again, once again, endorsing uh, clearly the, key, the uh, conclusions that Russia had interfered in the 2016 election. That's not just history. It's uh, what's happening right now. Are you seeing signs, Tony, of any foreign penetration of the Biden campaign? No, what, we're, what I'm seeing at the very least are ongoing and serious efforts using primarily social media to try to um, interfere in the, uh, in the election and in our, in our democracy. Whether there are other things going on in other ways, you know, our intelligence community would be privy to that. I'm, I, I'm no longer privy to that information. But based on what we saw in 2016, based on what we can, uh, we have a some sense that's happening now, visibly happening, 
one can imagine that uh, there's a lot more going on and that this is a clear and present danger, not some relic of the past. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, uh, Tony, it's uh, it's fair to say that if Biden is elected, you will once again be privy to such information. <laughs> so uh, we'll be back to you at that point. Uh, so, Tony, if Joe Biden wins the election on November 3rd, there's a pretty good chance that he will become the 46th president of the United States in the midst of a pandemic uh, with a second wave possibly, you know, wreaking more havoc on this country and on our economy. But it is also the case that in crisis, there also comes opportunity. FDR created the New Deal out of the Depression, for example. So what is Joe Biden's vision for how how we emerge from this crisis? Where will he want to take the country a kinder, gentler form of, of capitalism, a ro- more robust safety net? Does he think that we America needs to just kind of tinker at the edges uh, because we're mostly right? Or do we need a dramatic overhaul of American values and institutions? What kind of America does Joe Biden want to see emerge from this crisis? Well, the easiest thing for me to say is stay tuned, because I, he's going to be speaking to that in various ways in some detail in the uh, in the coming days and weeks. But I think that there's no doubt in, in his mind that, A, the first thing is to get is, is to get through this. And w- once we've done that, out of this historic tragedy, for so many uh, of our fellow citizens and for people around the world, uh, we have to find opportunity. We have to find meaning. We have to use this, in effect, to build back better. And he has some very concrete ideas for how we can do that. I would say this, too. Even before the virus, if you look at the platform that um, the vice president would be bringing into the election as the Democratic uh, uh, nominee, it is on virtually every issue you can think of, whether it's health care, uh, whether it's education, whether it's uh, taxation, whether it is immigration, whether it is looking at various programs throughout the government. It is arguably the most progressive platform that any Democratic nominee will bring into a general election. He believes strongly that this is not about going back to 2008, 2009. We have to be prepared for the world as we're going to find it in January uh, of next year and as uh, as we anticipate it will be in the years to follow and to make sure that we are adjusting, adapting, and as necessary, transforming our society to meet the challenges of this moment. So I think if you look at what's already on the books in terms of his plans, it is about um, putting our country in a place where it can meet the particular challenges of our time. The virus, in many ways, uh, has only underscored how urgent those ideas and those plans are. And, of course, we're we're, we're factoring in the uh, virus effect and thinking about them. But the bottom line is stay tuned because I don't want to get ahead of my my boss. This is something he's going to be speaking to in the day. Is there there a a big speech that we should be looking for in the coming days or just out of curiosity? I would just say keep your eyes and your eyes open. (laughs) Okay. Tony, thanks again for joining us on Skullduggery, and we will definitely be back to you. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. We'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
We now have with us the author of The End of October, Larry Wright. Larry, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you, Mike. It's good to talk to you again. Great novel, and I guess the thing that just <laughs> is amazing to uh, both Clydeman and I is you wrote this before coronavirus. It is just now coming out. How did you get the idea to write this remarkable novel? Well, it started a decade ago when Ridley Scott asked me if I would uh, explain what well, he had read this Cormac McCarthy novel, The Road, you know, as a post-apocalyptic oh, yeah. novel. Yeah. And, great, but there's no book. explanation about what happened that caused civilization to collapse. So that was Ridley's question, you know, what happened? And uh, it was an interesting question. I thought about nuclear war, but, uh, you know, when I was a young reporter, I lived in Atlanta, and I did several stories that came out of the Center for Disease Control. At that time, a wonderful, distinguished government agency. And uh, I wrote about swine flu outbreak in 1976 and the um, Legionnaire's disease that happened at the same time. But I was so interested and enchanted by the people that are the scientists that I met. They were like intellectual swashbuckling, you know, <laughs> characters. And I, I was very admiring of them. So I decided I would set the, at that time, the screenplay in the world of epidemiology. Ridley did not make it. And actually, I'm so glad he didn't because I hadn't solved the problem, really, of the story. But also, I hadn't done the the kind of research that I really needed to do. So about, you know, 2017, I had never lost interest in the story. And I decided I would do it as a novel and not worry about the cinematic qualities of it, but just write the story and do the research. And, and that's where this came from. Larry, tell us a little bit about the story itself and uh, understanding that uh, you don't want to give too much of the plot away, I'm sure. But just for our for our listeners, tell us what the basic story is. And then we're going to want to ask you a lot of questions about what it was like finishing this novel while actually living in a pandemic. Well, the story is about uh, an epidemiologist named Henry Parsons. He's a virologist and epidemiologist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. But he happens to be in Geneva at a meeting of the World Health Organization uh, when there's a report about a mysterious outbreak in a detention camp in Indonesia. And it's a little sketchy. And he's suspicious of it because it doesn't it doesn't add up for him. And the director of the World Health Organization asked him to go check out Indonesia and see what's going on. Indonesia, I picked Indonesia because it has a bad reputation in the world of public health for hiding the ball sometimes, as China did during SARS, for instance. And so uh, it required some investigation to find out what was actually happening. And Henry goes to Indonesia and visits the camp, and it turns out there is a, a widespread epidemic. It's killed more than 40 people already, including a group of doctors without borders who had come there thinking that it was an HIV infection. And uh, unfortunately, Henry gets exposed and has to be in quarantine. Meantime, the, the virus travels to Mecca, 
where three million pilgrims are gathered and uh, about to return to their countries with the prospect of seeding a pandemic almost instantly all over the world. So, Larry, in your novel, this is a virus coming out of Asia that's transmitted by migratory birds and human transmission. Although, if I remember correctly, the initial the initial transmission is from birds to humans. As we find out, uh, the birds, you know, most influenzas come from birds. You know, we call them avian influenzas for a reason. They originate in the avian population. Typically, they pass from bird to another mammal, something, pigs are a very common means of transmission. They, who are, these kinds of, are pangolins in the case of COVID, perhaps. They are animals that are more susceptible to bird infection, but then they culture it inside their own bodies and with their mammals, and they make it infectious to humans. What's so striking in reading the book is just how many parallels to what you are writing in this novel to what we are experiencing today, right down to when Dr. Parsons and others from CDC realize the magnitude of what's taking place and they start pressing people at the highest levels of the U.S. government, the White House, about imposing social distancing restrictions and essentially shutting down the economy. And the first reaction is people just stare at them as though they, you know, they don't know what <laughs> they're be, they're talking about and yet there you were sort of like outlining exactly what we are now experiencing well some of that was lucky guesses but most of it was just research mike you know i i look back at history and how we behaved and also i talked to all these experts in medicine and also in government and got a sense of how would it go down and uh you know, and then using my own judgment about the current political climate, you know, I just kind of wrote it as I thought it would happen after doing all that research. Can I just give my uh, give our uh, listeners just a little bit of a flavor of that? I was going to read a short section here. This is uh, Lieutenant Commander Bartlett, who I think is the um, with the Public Health Service, uh, if, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, and she's being asked at a White House uh, what situation room meeting how people will have to behave and deal with this virus, and she says, uh, "You say Bartlett had little to offer except to shelter in place." That's a phrase, by the way, that most Americans didn't know until a few weeks ago. Wash your hands. Don't go out in public unless vitally necessary. And if you do, wear a mask and sanitary gloves. Quote, if you have symptoms, bear in mind that the hospitals are already full and may not be the best place for you anyway unless you need a ventilator. If you have no one at home to take care of you, make sure you have at least two people who will call you twice a day, drink fluids, stay in bed. And then you go on to say, don't take aspirin or Aleve or Advil, something that we've all been admonished not to do if we get sick. It's striking how much all of the echoes. Um, one of the things that fascinates me about the book, Larry, is, is uh, there, there's all that kind of practical information and the sort of medical information that we learned about. But there's, then there's also the sort of social impact of a pandemic. And I'm curious what you have seen. Obviously, what we're dealing with is not as catastrophic as the pandemic that you write about, which kills literally millions and millions of people in the United States. 
But you do see in, in our existence right now, you do see glimpses of some of the kind of social breakdown or the potential for a kind of a breakdown in social harmony and some of the other social impacts uh, that a pandemic like this could cause. What have you noticed in how we are dealing with this pandemic now that we've been living through it over the last few weeks? Well, you know, in some ways, I have to say that I gave ordinary people less credit in the novel than they deserve for, you know, self-isolating at enormous personal and financial cost. You know, it's been quite remarkable, the solidarity of people for the most part. That won't last forever. But, you know, I, I think I should give people better, <laughs> better marks than I gave them in the novel. On the other hand, governments are behaving very much as expected or worse. And it's, you know, it's dismaying to see, for me especially, to see the Center for Disease Control stumble so badly at the cost of many lives. You know, the, the fact that we didn't have the testing available. And even now, when they're trying to, you know, get an antibody test, you know, we're still handicapped. This is really dismaying and, and, you know, it's an example of the incompetence of our government and our, and our institutions. It's, there's something about a pandemic or a war or a depression, any great event in history, I suppose, it reveals the society that you're living in. And I think that this is one of the things that most people have come to understand. The limitations of America right now are so nakedly visible. Our, you know, the lack of competence at the highest level, the lack of responsibility and accountability, the end absence of compassion in so many levels. You know, there's there's and you know there's an absence of a safety net. The you know the premise that modern America was built upon was pretty much you're in it on your own. And now that we're in this all together, I think we realize that we need another model. Whether we actually work toward that is yet to be shown. What's so striking here is you've been doing this research, you say, since, uh, well, at least actively working research for the book since 2017. And you're seeing all the what the a pandemic can do, the damage it could do, the mass chaos it could cause, the steps that need be, to be taken to combat it. You saw all this, and our government at the highest levels did not, was completely caught flat-footed and unable to respond, at least in those first few months. How is it that you were able to see what the people at the highest levels of the U.S. government were not? Well, Mike, it's really simple. I just went out and talked to the people who were experts on this subject. And, you know, most of them worked in some capacity for the government at the NIH, at Fort Detrick and places like that. And moreover, there were I totally used made use of the tabletop exercises that had been done almost every year at Johns Hopkins and other places where they envisioned things, pandemics exactly like this. And, you know sometimes with far more alarm than I used in my novel. It was there. It was all there. The difference between what happened in the novel, you know, my ability to write the novel and the government's inability to handle this is I simply listened to what the experts had to say. Who do you blame most for our lack of adequate response to this? Well, 
you know, we have uh, our our storehouse of, of supplies was depleted. And so that, you know, it started, you know, going back to the Bush administration when we started that and the Obama administration, we just did not adequately refill our supplies. But you can't get around the fact that the Trump administration made some horrible decisions right at the, right at the beginning of the, the administration. First of all, the cutbacks on healthcare and especially the CDC, you know, with all this complaining about the World Health Organization, the United States had its own team in China, a CDC surveillance team working with Chinese authorities up until the Trump administration cut the budget for the CDC and they had to cut back all those surveillance teams. So we blinded ourselves to what was going on in China and we might have known. And then uh, John Bolton, one of his early decisions as the NSC advisor was to eliminate the pandemic response team, which was headed by Anthony, uh, uh, Admiral Timothy Zemer, who had overseen the malaria outbreaks in Africa and is credited with saving six million lives. That's the team that would have been leading the response to the COVID-19 outbreak in the United States, but it doesn't exist anymore. It seems as if, uh, you know, they, what do they say? Truth is stranger than fiction. And in your novel, it seems like you didn't conjure, even conjure up a government failure on the level that, that we have seen. And, and it's ironic to me since one of your best known books, The Looming Tower, much of that is about the government's uh, intelligence failure uh, in terms of, you know, the 9-11 attacks. Yeah, I I think that the the way I characterize the government's response in the early portion of the well all through the book is dismissal and and disbelief. You know, it's not a human problem. It's not like Russia or China, something we need to do something about. And that's really kind of the way that you know that we've behaved in the past as well. Uh, even going back to the 1918 flu, it was the war that preoccupied not only the government, but the press. Very little, you know, the, in the Woodrow Wilson's administration during the 1918-19 Spanish flu epidemic, he never referred to it, even though he got it. <laughs> he, right. he, was, he was ill. But, you know, far more Americans died than uh, soldiers in, in that war. In fact, far more Americans died more than 670,000 of the, the Spanish flu in 1918-19 than all the American soldiers in all the wars in the 20th century, the World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, and yet that whole episode was pretty much buried in memory and rarely referred to. Yeah, I was going to say I was really struck by a passage uh, very late in the book, you know, towards the end, where you write the histories of the 1918 pandemic all observed that su survivors rarely talked about it afterwards. You could almost believe that it hadn't happened except for the gravestones with similar uh, dates. And then uh, you go on to write the uh, 1918 flu killed twice as many people as died in combat during the entire four years of the first World War, and yet the customary horror of another pandemic never fully captured by history. Why is that? Well, I've thought a lot about that. It's fascinating. Uh, you know, my own father had it when he was three years old, as his parents did, and he never, he never talked about it. I think in part, 
you know, this was early in the 20th century, long before the, the great conquests of medicine against the pandemic diseases like typhus, diphtheria, polio. You know, at that point, people dying of disease was far more common. But there's, there's an absence of heroism that's connected with suffering and dying from disease. And also, I think, stigma and guilt and shame follow diseases. So there's a sense that, you know, let's just put that behind us. And so people buried their relatives and they buried their memories as well. Larry, you talked about the failings of the CDC, particularly with the testing fiasco. But what has impressed you during this pandemic in terms of the reaction from epidemiologists and scientists and public health uh, professionals? Well, there's been an enormous effort by private industry in concert with uh, um, you know, the government uh, authorities to get a vaccine and a therapeutic online as quickly as possible. And it's, the medical community is moving at an amazing speed. And they're getting a, a, a tailwind from the Food and Drug Administration. I'm not going to say the Food and Drug Administration has been blameless in this. The, you know, the fact that we are in a kind of chaotic situation with testing, so many different tests that don't seem to be correlated at all. But, you know, there are great minds involved in trying to create a vaccine. And many of them were sources for me in this book. Then they're on the front lines right now. And I have to say, I feel that we are, we're making the best effort we possibly can to try to counter this disease as quickly as possible. And moreover, there's more international cooperation in this effort than I would have guessed. So those things have really uh, impressed me. When did you actually finish the book? Well, I think I turned in the last draft in July of last year. July of last year. So six months before anybody had heard of COVID-19. I'm just wondering what was going through your mind in late December, early January, when the first reports are emerging out of China about this virus? Well, the Chinese made that declaration on New Year's Eve, you remember, and you know, there was a virus. It wasn't very much information. For the next three weeks, they wouldn't let the World Health Authorities uh, into the country. And that worried me. And I thought back to the SARS epidemic. That was 2003. It started in China. China hid the fact that there was this terrible disease. When health authorities visited China, there were reports that the hospitals placed the SARS patients in ambulances and had them drive around town until the health authorities had left. So they were hiding SARS back then. It was a, a miracle of, you know, of public health that they were able to stop that very contagious, highly fatal disease within 100 days. If we were dealing with SARS right now rather than COVID-19, we'd be in far more dangerous situation, much more like the one that I depicted in the novel. I was worried about it, you know, as soon as I heard about it. But you also must have thought, what a great uh, development for my novel. Well, if you think of publishing a book when all the bookstores are closed is a, is a smart move. I don't know. Larry, what do you make of the theory that is uh, you know, getting a fair amount of attention and taken, I think, seriously by, among others, the U.S. intelligence 
community that the origins of the spread of uh, COVID-19, of this virus, uh, was a lab accident in Wuhan, in uh, Wuhan province? Well, it's possible, but unproven. And, uh, you know, at that lab that they're referencing, they study coronaviruses. They have a kind of library of coronaviruses that infect bats. So no doubt they had this particular virus in the lab. But, you know, from all that I've read, they take very good care of, you know, their virus samples. They kill the viruses almost immediately so they can just study the structure so they're not infectious. There's no question that it is a natural virus and not one that was concocted as a mm-hmm. kind of bioweapon. But in a deeper level, Dan, what troubles me about this is something that I depicted in the novel, is that along with a you know, great pandemic, usually blame comes along with it. And uh, going back to the Black Plague, you know, uh, you know, they were blaming Jews for it. You know, thousands of Jews were burned at the stake. In the novel, I, you know, I have Russia and the United States each accusing the other of manufacturing the disease. Now it's America accusing China and China and Russia and Iran and North Korea all blaming the United States, saying that we cooked it up in one of our bio labs. These are very dangerous allegations, and there are consequences to this. I mean, we're, we, even when this started, we're already at a point of enormous conflict with many different nations. And we've been in a low-level war, is a cyber war, for years. So I don't think it would take very much to actually push this to the next level. And we don't want to go there, but it could happen. Well, I mean, on the other hand, I mean, you know, one of the things that keeps national security, some national security officials up at night is the possibility of a man-made virus and biological warfare. Now that the American people have gone through this crisis and have gotten a taste of how scary it is, how worried should people be? I don't want to engage in fear-mongering here, but how worried should people be about one of our rivals, say Russia, using this as a weapon of war? I'm concerned about this. I've been worried about, uh, you know, when we talk about weapons of mass destruction and terrorist groups, for instance, well, Al-Qaeda experienced, you know, explored biological and chemical weapons. Om Shinrikyo, you know, people don't seem to remember very much about it, but, you know, is the cult that followed that Japanese yoga, blind yoga instructor. And, uh, but it was full of engineers and scientists. And, uh, Honestly, to create a, or experiment with a virus using modern technology like CRISPR, it's not very hard for people that are trained in it. And Om Shinrikyo had an ambition of reducing the human population to a few select members, such as their members. They were experimenting with ricin, as I, as I recall. Is that right? Yeah, and sarin gas they used on the subways. And they also had a land in Australia with, on you know, top of a uranium mine. So they had clearly an idea that they would like to have something that would destroy much of the population of the earth. That's true also of some white supremacist groups. So, you know, this is not a crazy idea that terrorist groups would turn to it. Now, as for nations, I'm especially worried about Russia because uh, in the closing days of the Soviet Union, they had a very active bio-warfare campaign, and they were putting horrible diseases such as smallpox and Marburg 
you know, in, in intercontinental missiles. They were going to be deployed in the case of, uh, of warfare. And even now, Putin has spoken of, you know, boasted about his bio-warfare arsenal, including what he calls genetic weapons, which I don't know what he means by that. But, uh, you know, I think that people aren't fully appreciative of how reckless some of these entities can be and how dangerous are the tools that biology can provide. Larry, explain the title, The End of October. Well, it has several meanings. One is, I guess the best way of explaining it is underneath the progress of the disease that I created is a template, which is the 1918 flu. And I even created a calendar on my computer of, you know, what happened in 1918, and I superimposed it on a year, it happens to be 2020, to mark the progress of 1918 against my own flu. And um, so the, just like my flu, it came out in the early spring, and, uh, you know, it was very devastating, but there was a second wave. And October of 1918 was the deadliest month in American history. And that's where the novel ends. So it's a, it's a kind of a bleak ending, but you asked me to explain it. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, was... and we, of course, we're, we have been talking about a second wave of COVID-19. Will you expect a second wave? And what are the chances that it will be more virulent than the first wave? Well, I think it's likely that there'll be a second wave. There already are second waves in, you know, Singapore and Japan. But in the fall, uh, you know, Dr. Fauci is saying that there will be a second wave. I think he's modeling his thinking on the influenza. This is not influenza. This is a coronavirus. But, you know, with a brand new pandemic, you know, I already mentioned 1918, but uh, Hong Kong flu did the same thing. In 1968-69, uh, you know, there was a, a far more fatal second wave that was very devastating. So, you know, if, if COVID-19 behaves as an influenza, then we're very likely to see a second wave come this fall. Last question, Larry. Uh, your the novel basically is, as I think you said before, dystopian. Uh, it envisions a, a, a ver almost complete breakdown of American society. Uh, our major cities turn into ghost towns. Um, millions of people die. The president dies. All sorts of horrible things happen. How confident are you that um, what we're experiencing now won't get that bad? I don't think it's going to get that bad, but I don't think that we've, you know, we haven't solved the problems of this particular virus yet. It's a very, very complicated virus and surprising in so many ways. I mean, it seems like every week we find some new eccentric aspect to this virus. And, and so the scientists are really struggling to understand it. And whether they can actually produce a vaccine, the jury's out on that. You know, they were working on a SARS vaccine. And one of the problems with the SARS vaccine that they created was that it sometimes made the infection worse. So we don't want that to happen. 
So, you know, we cross our fingers and hope that the scientists can come up with therapies and with a vaccine that will allow us to actually have some tool to fight the virus. But I don't think that we're finished with the geopolitical consequences of this yet. You know, we're, the world is going through a big shakeup. And, you know, this is this marks a scar on the body of history and the world is going to change. Now, the question is, will it change for the better or for the worse? You know, I look at pandemics in history and, uh, you know, like the plague of Athens in the fourth century BC, which, you know, it, it led into this period of total chaos. And, uh, you know, just it was, you know, society was essentially ruined by that. And on the other hand, the Black Death ended the Middle Ages and opened the door to the Renaissance. And that's because it required new thinking. And, it, you know, it, it upset the old order. Now, this is not the Black Death, but it is a profound moment in human society. And we have an opportunity. I think it, in some ways this this is not the big one. This is one pandemic among many. And you just look back at 2003 when we had SARS followed by MERS, followed by H5N1, followed by Zika, followed one terribly Ebola, uh, one terribly, terribly dangerous disease after another, many of them far more mortal than what we're looking at. And we've been lucky, really, that uh, we're not dealing with those diseases, uh, but we are dealing with something that is less mortal, although more contagious than most of them. Uh, we'll, be we'll be facing more threats soon. Two quick questions. One is, ticking off all of those viruses, are we living in an age of viruses that didn't exist before? I mean, are there just a lot more of these threats out there? Well, the viruses existed, but they existed in nature. Now, the flu is something that gets is constantly changing. It's, you know, it's a, an RNA virus. It like coronavirus and it mutates. So new flus are being concocted all the time. But Ebola and other diseases, they were in animals. And partly because of our elimination of the rainforest and so on, our, you know, we've flushed these diseases out of nature uh, into human society. And, uh, you know, the, the world of viruses is fascinating. There are billions of viruses, and we only know of a few of them. So we're, we're, we're going to have to get a, a real handle on how viruses act, what, in, what are each of these viruses seek to do. You know, the, each of these viruses has a mission. We don't understand what they're after. And then finally, for me, just the last question for me, is there anything that gives you hope that we will kind of seize this opportunity to deal with some of the problems in our geopolitically or in our own society uh, that we have been living through. I mean, you talked about going from the Black Death to the Renaissance. Um, anything that gives you hope that uh, there's a, a golden age lying before us that we might actually be able to find? Well, I don't want to use the word hope exactly. I I am neither optimistic or pessimistic about it. I just am observing the fact that it's in our hands. You know, it's up to us. Now, you know, we've had other moments of possible civilizational or societal resets like 9-11. You know, I remember so distinctly the feeling after 9-11 
oh, we're going to have to stand for something now. We're going to have to be the America that our parents gave us. You know, that was such a strong feeling. And I thought it was going to be a transformational moment. And instead, we invaded Iraq. It changed society and history uh, profoundly, but not in the way that I would have hoped. And then to put it in another region of the world, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East. And when the Arab Spring came along, I was so hopeful that here is a region desperately in need of reform and democracy. And I thought this was that moment. But instead, much of the region became even more tyrannical. So there were opportunities all along. And this is one of those opportunities. It's, it's yet to be shown if we'll take advantage of it. The novel is The End of October. The author is Lawrence Wright. It is a great read. And Larry, as you mentioned, uh, it's tough to come out with a, uh, a new book when bookstores are closed. But I uh, imagine you will get quite a few Kindle downloads uh, for this book. And other ways people could read it, read it digitally as well. They should. Um, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. My pleasure, guys. Thanks to former Deputy National Security Advisor Anthony Blinken and author Lawrence Wright for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.